Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Good afternoon and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. This is Pat Leahy. I'm sitting in for Hugh Linehan for a few weeks and I'm joined this morning by our political correspondent, Harry McGee. Later, we'll be joined in the programme by Newton Emerson from Belfast to discuss the latest happenings or non-happenings in the Stormont Talks. But first, Leo Varadkar yesterday played host to his first major foreign visit. Dashing Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in town. Harry, you uh, attended some of the events yesterday with uh, Mr. Trudeau. uh, Have you recovered from the thrill of being so close to the Divine Presence? Well, um, seeing that the Irish Times has included him amongst its hottest male politicians, it was a momentous event for all. It was a complete victory of style over uh, substance yesterday. And I think Miriam Lord uh, captured it most succinctly in her column uh, 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 when she described it as uh, fanboy slim um, uh, meets uh, Justin Bebo. Uh, It was, I mean, Leo Varadkar looked like a a giddy teenager uh, anticipating a Justin Timberlake or a Justin... um, whatever the other little Canadian Justin is. Justin Bieber. Justin uh, Bieber uh, uh, gig. And uh, the smile on his face throughout the day yesterday resembled that of the Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland, even when he was jogging in the Phoenix Park um, uh, last night. I mean, the uh, obviously it was a very easy jog because the smile on his face was just uh, heartwarming. So he was he, he loved it. You might I mean, be used to more punishing sorts of exercise, uh, Harry, but it certainly looked like that there was a personal rapport between the the two men. Yeah, right? and I mean, it, it achieved what they set out to do. Uh, I was tweeting which was this, which was to give us a, a blow dry by blow dry account <laughs> of everything that happened during the day. It, you know, there were many things of huge import happening yesterday uh, in relation to waste charges in relation to d- discussions on gender equality uh, in politics in relation to uh, the agreement uh, between the EU and Canada, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, CETA as uh, it's called, but all of them were sidelined and eclipsed uh, by the Justin and uh, Leo uh, style show that went on for the Europe for the for the whole of the day was CETA the the free trade agreement which has been agreed between the Canadians and the European Union but now must be ratified by each individual state and against which there is a campaign building in many European countries uh, including here to prevent ratification of it. Is that the real reason uh, Mr Trudeau is here? I think he was doing a, a little bit of pressing on that, but not 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 obviously, not no no more than anything else. And it was obvious he was going to be questioned about it, and he seemed to have his homework prepared. But he kicked for touch, as all politicians do, on the critical question. And one of the big concerns that has been raised uh, about CETA, Pat, is this notion 
uh, that if uh, somebody were not to comply uh, with the provisions of, a, of an agreement, they can actually be sued uh, by Canadian companies uh, for uh, claimed uh, loss of income. Yeah, this is the worry that, that European states who are... Uh, who protect various areas of their economy, including public services, could be sued by commercial uh, concerns. And those cases are held in uh, special investor courts. This is one of the concerns that uh, campaigners have, that it's, if you like, the it's the flip side or the, the, the more negative side, as they would see it, of the liberalisation of trade and the abolition of tariffs between the two blocks. Yeah, they, they're essentially saying that what we have here is an agreement that gives licence to a, a laissez-faire approach to, to economics and there aren't any of the uh, counterbalancing um, rights that, that are affected to societies and consumers to, to protect uh, indigenous trades, uh, uh, often for, for legitimate reasons. Uh, perhaps geographical or because, perhaps because of uh, subsidiarisation. So uh, that is a concern. And you could, you could see yesterday that there was a, a very wide uh, variety of uh, interest groups who uh, were uh, hoisting placards and campaigning against it. And they encompassed trade unions, some of the smaller parties, uh, the farming lobby and some smaller uh, enterprises as well. So it's not just a small left-wing uh, section of uh, society that's campaigning against it. I think there is uh, some concerns that can be seen throughout uh, various uh, sectors. And it's going to be a difficulty already in Walloon, uh, in the Walloon region of Belgium. Uh, there was a vote taken against it, which was subsequently overturned. And I think the passage of CETA uh, through the various parliaments is going to be a turbulent and troublesome one. Mm, um, there's already been a, a vote against it in uh, the Senate, um, organised by uh, the President's daughter Alice Mary Higgins and some of her allies in the Senate. They had a vote against it last uh, November, I think it was. But the formal ratification process is yet to come and you have to think that it will most likely be pushed through uh, given that both Fianna Fáil, although Fianna Fáil senators spoke against it uh, in the Shannon, I think abstained uh, uh, on the vote, but they are likely to join forces to ratify the treaty here. With, with Fine Gael, I think when it comes to what they perceive to be the strategic interests of the country, you'll find that their interests uh, often uh, dovetail. But there will be a campaign against it. There will be a big campaign against uh, oh, it. Oh, yes. And I think the, you, you refer to the campaign that has been mounted by uh, Alice Mary Higgins and Lynn Ruan and others within the Shannon Grace O'Sullivan and the Green Party uh, has also been uh, involved uh, with that. And they, they did a lot of homework. Uh, there was a substantial debate uh, in the Shannad. And if nothing else, it did raise awareness about some of the concerns and some of the issues in relation uh, to uh, this uh, agreement. And I think that the concerns that were expressed in the Shannad will be translated in the Doyle. And I think there will be a, a rumpus in the Doyle. But I think that you're quite correct in your analysis, Pat, that ultimately uh, the two big uh, parties will conspire together uh, to ensure uh, that CETA actually goes through and is ratified. I think Fianna Fáil will, will express some misgivings about some of the aspects, but those misgivings will not be uh, sufficient enough or will not carry enough weight uh, to uh, to essentially uh, make it abstain or even vote against. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that uh, the two leaders were questioned about uh, yesterday was their feminist uh, credentials. And... Um, uh, he is, of course, immensely popular with uh, with women, Mr. Trudeau, uh, presumably only because of his uh, his feminist credentials and his gender balanced cabinet and uh, and so forth. Uh, Leo's credentials uh, not quite as shiny in that regard. 
yeah, there was some 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 of the the glitter came off um, immediately after his uh, election when he he didn't really he he the the gender balance. Two, two women were essentially demoted. If you look at it overall, um, Marcella Corcoran-Kennedy from the junior ranks and then he replaced the Attorney General with, with the male. So when you look at the Cabinet, including junior ministers, senior ministers and the Attorney General, there were less women in the Cabinet than were uh, when Enda Kenny uh, was Taoiseach. In fairness to Leo Varadkar, there isn't a huge pool. I mean, there's still a, a relatively small uh, number of, of Fine Gael he, he makes female the point TDs. that he has 12 TDs supporting the government mm. of whom seven are ministers a- absolutely and and some of those um, who um, who didn't get preferment were those who voted against him and the, the males who voted against him didn't get preferment in the main uh, and I think what's good for the goose has to be good for the gander so he did have to have some choice in relation to that but the optics of it were bad he was presenting himself as young uh, modern, progressive, step change, generational change and all that. And when you see that women are actually going slightly backwards rather than slightly forwards in terms of the overall permutation, I don't think that's a particularly good thing uh, for Leo Varadkar. But he is constrained in what he can do. I mean, in Ireland, for example, you can't really uh, pluck ministers uh, from outside the parliamentary party ranks. There is provision um, to uh, appoint two ministers from the Shannad uh, and it has been done before only once, as far as I can recall, in, in the early 1980s when Gareth Fitzgerald appointed Jim Duke, who was a Taoiseach-appointed senator, to become Minister for Foreign Affairs. To, was, up, to uproar in his parliamentary party uh, uh, or uproar amongst his TDs, and he didn't do it again when he was later returned to government. Uh, absolutely, but I mean, there was a facility for Leo Varadkar perhaps to appoint one or two uh, from the Shannad if he were minded uh, to do so, but he he... he didn't do that. But I mean, it's again, it's quite limited. And perhaps uh, in the long term, uh, there might be an argument uh, for uh, Tishi uh, to be allowed to appoint ministers from outside the parliamentary ranks. This happens in a lot of other countries. I mean, there is going to be a constitutional amendment. It would take a constitutional amendment, I think. But I think I think the the argument for it would probably be slightly more uh, compelling, given the experience in other countries, especially some of the ministries have become very technical uh, in in recent years. And um, Sometimes you need a person to be in charge of a ministry who has the requisite technical uh, skills as well as the political skills, which are always necessary. So it's very hard to find a combination of a person who's a good politician and also who's quite good technically in, in that role. Uh, but I think the demands, the technical demands will, will increase as we uh, go on in terms of time. Mm-hmm. Now, the other uh, political story yesterday, I suppose, was uh, about the government's plan to reform the way many people pay for their bins uh, to be collected. Uh, much huffing and puffing, but eventually, at if not quite the 11th hour, then maybe at the 10th hour, there was a compromise deal between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Yeah, if you look at the at the uh, waste uh, issue, it's, it is deja vu all over again. It's the water charges uh, replayed in many ways because the same, there's, there's an EU directive, uh, the waste directive, uh, there's the polluter pays uh, principle and the, the polluter pays principle said that the person who, who uses uh, the waste and if they use excess waste must pay for use, for use of that excess waste. And it's exactly the same principle that applied to water. And then you have this dichotomy between urban and rural. If you look at the way in which waste charges are levied 
at present. It's mainly in the city areas, in the urban areas, particularly Dublin, uh, where flat charges uh, apply. When you go down to uh, the country in rural areas, uh, people have been paying by weight or paying by lift for a considerable period of time and have done so uh, without any rancour. So Does that mean that, like the water charges, Dublin will be the cockpit of this particular dispute? It, it will. I, I think it will. And particularly working class areas um, in, in, in Dublin uh, where parties like uh, Solidarity and People Before Profit, uh, Sinn Féin and left-wing independents are, are strong. And that is going to play. Do you think it's the water charges, Mark, too? I, I don't think so, because I think that Fianna Fáil were very conscious uh, of it um, and the, the the strategy they have pursued in relation to this, as you reported uh, this morning, is markedly different. Comprehensively. Comprehensively, and <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. I, <laughs> I've cut it out, Pat, and yeah. I framed it at home. It was such a good report. Um, but um, uh, essentially, um, they they realised that that the, the strategy that was pursued for water charges wasn't perhaps the smartest strategy that Fianna Fáil have ever pursued. I think they uh, acquiesced to kind of populist demand. And is that is that is that your That's my, view uh, of it, or do you think that Fianna Fáil have come to this view? I think some in Fianna Fáil were, were nonplussed at the strategy that was pursued, especially rural TDs, because rural TDs are used to group water schemes and people, you know, there are 300,000 households in the country who have been paying for water for generations and not a whimper was raised by anybody in their behalf until their situation came, came uh, to light. And um, I think that, that, that some Fianna Fáil TDs and senators believe that uh, the party was led by the nose, uh, by, by a kind of uh, a cabal around the leadership on, on, on this issue and pursued a strategy that wasn't correct and didn't go down well with its uh, members. Now, those who are strategists in Fianna Fáil will say, well, the people that we're trying to attract are people who are slightly younger, who are urban, who are not people necessarily members of Fianna Fáil are card-carrying members and living in Dublin and they, they, their sentiment was very much against water charges. So, I mean, the jury is out in relation to that. But Fianna Fáil knew that if they were allowed this uh, situation to uh, persist and to fester and to allow uh, a vacuum to, to arrive, uh, that uh, the left-wing parties would be very uh, astute taking advantage of that. And that's why I think that they moved quite early uh, to, to broker a deal uh, with Fine Gael to come to some arrangement that both of them can live with uh, that will allow a charging regime to come in quickly and that will essentially draw line under this controversy. But there, it's, it's quite a different approach to the water uh, to the water charges uh, dispute as, as uh, it seems to me because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are essentially on the same side in this and they've reached a compromise on uh, on a regulator and a watchdog a watchdog collating data on the market eventually leading to uh, to a regulator but essentially on the introduction of the principle of paying by weight or per lift, they are uh, they're, they're more or less agreed on that. The dividing line is uh, is 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 to their left, uh, where Sinn Féin, the left wing parties, the left wing independents are furiously opposed uh, to uh, to this uh, to this principle. Absolutely. So when you look at the differences between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, it's not in relation to the principle; it's in relation to some of the details. And Fianna Fáil have expressed concern that some of the waste companies might try to gouge prices and try to to uh, increase prices uh, uh, in a way that's unfair to consumers and to householders. And they've also tried to put language in uh, that will give waivers to those who are in hard circumstances or those who are 
carers, for example, and who might have lots of um, sanitary materials to, to throw out every week because of the situation that they find themselves in. And they've arrived at a compromise in relation to that. We'll see how well that works. You're quite right. There's another divide that's uh, a far more schismic there's, one. There's the divide on, on the principle of, uh, of, of pro- the pro- you know, this business being operated by private uh, by private entities of paying for waste mm. uh, paying for waste collection uh, as, as a as a principle uh, absolutely and 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 there's there's a schism that's emerging uh, on the left and the, the 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 fight in this is really going to be the fight between political fights going to be between between Sinn Fein and the parties to the left of Sinn Fein uh, essentially to see wh- which of them is more obdurate in terms of their resistance uh, to this regime change. So Is fe- that reflective, do you think? That, that division, not, not the intra-left division, but the division, say, between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and, I suppose, the Labour Party on, uh, on one side and Sinn Féin and the, uh, the left-wing independents and the smaller parties on the other. Is that reflective of you know, a more fundamental emerging divide in Irish politics. To some extent it is, but I think it also reflects their constituencies. And if you look at the constituencies where Sinn Féin and the left-wing parties are strongest, that's where opposition to bin charges will be at its, uh, at, at its, its, its sharpest. And I think they, they, the parties, in their own electoral interests, and this is what happens in politics, are very uh, cognizant uh, of that. Uh, Sinn Féin have already come uh, out with, with a very strong line in relation to what they want to do. They want a process called remunicipalisation, which is a bit of a mouthful to take place, i.e. for the local authorities to take charge of domestic uh, uh, garbage collection again. I don't think that's going to happen, Pat, but that's what they want. And they also want the uh, flat charge system that's been in place uh, to be uh, retained. I don't think that's going to happen either. I think the uh, left-wing parties will... Uh, they had a press conference uh, this morning, uh, which I think you went in for the for the end of. But that they, they are advocating an even uh, harder uh, line, and they, I think that what's going to happen is that we are going to see an attempt to have another boycott campaign, uh, civil disobedience, uh, resistance. I don't know if it's going to have the same popular support uh, or the same kind of momentum that we had for the water charges campaign. I just don't think that um, the public empathy lies with uh, the left-wing parties to the same extent as it did for water charges. Is that because so many people are used to paying for waste? Yeah, and I think it's easier to get the waste thing. The the you know you, you, if you have waste and if you're kind of sorting it and recycling it and if if you're putting out a lot of waste to to landfill, pe- pe- the, the the notion of an incentive has been there for a long time for for an awful lot of people. The other thing is that unlike water that um, if uh, you boycott the waste thing and uh, nobody's going to collect your waste and you're going to quickly see a situation where waste kind of begins to pile up on the streets and that is going to lead to an untenable situation and a kind of... Uh, a, that which would quickly well, lead to a showdown. It would pile up on the street outside your house, I suppose. Mm? It would pile up on the street outside your own house, wouldn't it? It, it would. Mm. And that, that will lead to an untenable situation and a showdown at some uh, stage. And I mean, So you think that the, you, you can't see this? I mean, it seems well, to me well, that the happened- great... The, the great triumph of the water charges campaign came when opposition moved from uh, from disadvantaged communities into Middle Ireland, and you had a broad-based campaign with huge marches and 
you had very very much a middle ground opposition uh, to this. You don't see you don't see the waste campaign getting that sort of traction. No, because if you look back at the at the campaign that happened during the nineteen nineties, it was very successful for for a relatively short period of time. But but it was it was evidence only in working class areas uh, in in Dublin and didn't kind of uh, creep into into more middle class areas. And even though it had a lot of momentum at the start, uh, after a, a year it began to fizzle out and people began to tire of it. And um, uh, essentially the the campaign ca- came to an end without reaching the, the, the aims that uh, it had. And um, I mean... Uh, does history repeat itself? I think in this instance it could to a certain extent. First is tragedy, then is farce, I gather. Um, Harry, thanks very much for that. We'll take a short break now, but when we return, we'll be talking to Newton Emerson in Belfast. You're listening to the Irish Times. You're welcome back to the Irish Times Politics Podcast with Pat Leahy sitting in for Hugh Linehan. Now, yesterday, the talks at Stormont seeking to re-establish the northern institutions were finally suspended for the summer. So I'm joined uh, on the line from Belfast by our columnist Newton Emerson. Newton, good afternoon. Uh, the talks finally put to death yesterday. Was that Paris really dead before that? No, uh, it, there's been a strange misunderstanding about uh, about expectations here. I think it was there was never any prospect of a deal being done by this uh, June 29th deadline or over the summer. And in fact, from as far back as March, people were saying the deal will be in the autumn. Uh, From uh, before the general election, there were reports that a second assembly election was being planned for October. So that's the kind of time frame you were talking about here. The problem, I think, for the Northern Ireland office is that legislation in place makes it very difficult to keep stretching that deadline out. They uh, had fudged the law, they'd amended the law before the general election was called, but then that really threw a spanner in the works. They didn't know where they were with the law. And uh, and so they, they, they've managed, I think, very, uh, very badly. They, they, they've managed the, uh, the optics and the impression of how they're stretching this deadline out. But that's uh, you know that that's not to forget that we were never going to uh, to, to make it for a, a July or summer deadline anyway. Uh, you know the, this is um, the, the, we're still on course essentially for where everybody expected things to be. There's just been a lot of uh, of ham-fisted handling of it. Is that just because the parties want some time to pass, want to wait each other out, see how the situation at Westminster settles down? Or is it because they are taking time to work through the issues that divide them? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's that organised. I, I think that they simply didn't expect that any work would get done over the summer because it never does. We have the marching season to digest here. The Assembly is usually uh, is usually uh, off on uh, on recess anyway. The executive rarely does anything. Uh, so uh, all that was was up in the air to begin with. And then, of course, the general election produced this freakish result of the DUP essentially wagging the uh, the dog at Westminster. So the DUP will want to see how that pans out, as will Sinn Féin. But uh, really, I think that what happened is everybody got to the start of the summer without having given much serious thoughts to what they were going to do over it, um, because everyone was, in fact, focused on the idea that it would be back to work in September, as indeed it, it almost always is in the political calendar here. Does the deal with the Conservatives, the DUP's deal with the Conservatives, make 
the DUP more or less likely to want the institutions back up and running, presumably in a situation where the institute, the governing institutions are suspended, there is considerable influence they can bring to bear with the British government uh, behind the scenes? Or do they want the, the government back up and running? The DUP desperately wants Stormont back up and running. It's really the only forum that unionism has where it can uh, where it can exercise any meaningful kind of authority uh, apart from under the present bizarre circumstances at Westminster. The DUP still knows that. Perhaps this Westminster deal has made it a little less urgent for the DUP to restore Stormont, but as it still desperately wants it anyway, that's really a, a minor factor. I think more, much more important is the pressure it has put on Sinn Féin. It's Sinn Féin that is thinking about whether it wants to return to Stormont at all. And this does increase the pressure on it in the medium term as budgets falter, as this £1 billion pot of money is sitting there from London, able to solve problems that crop yeah, what, up. What, what happens to yeah. that money now? Or do we know? Well, well, you see, the, the, the money was... Presumably uh, there is an account it is only resting in. Well, well, it, it's gone into the essentially the Northern Ireland fund, the block grant, but it has been earmarked for various projects, like, for example, £200 million for health service restructuring and more for infrastructure and so on. These will all go, uh, will all, these sums will all slot into existing programmes and policies. So Stormont can be left essentially on civil service autopilot. There's more than enough work to do to, to spend this money. Uh, there are some decisions to be made on appropriating it. There's no doubt about that. And it is uh, it is striking that one large project, the, the uh, motorway junction in, in North Belfast, essentially, has been mentioned in the deal. So that, that's been bumped up the schedule. But um, it's remarkable how, uh, how long Northern Ireland can run with nobody's hands on the wheel, really. It, it's almost used to it, I suppose, because after so long a period of direct rule, and with such a generally inactive executive, even when it works, things tick along without much ministerial direction. Harry, is the increasing focus and the upcoming, we know not when, but uh, but still upcoming change of leadership uh, in the party, its focus on the South, its reluctance to be seen to be in government with all the compromises that entails in the North while seeking office uh, in the South, is that pushing Stormont further and further down the, uh, the, the, the agenda for Sinn Féin? Well, uh, well, Sinn Féin have put an inordinate amount of effort uh, and and man and woman hours into the north over the past six months. I mean, Jerry Adams has almost been and Pierce Doherty have have been up there more than they have been in, in the south uh, in the run up to the Westminster uh, elections. I think that perhaps Sinn Féin have gone beyond that because there 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 there, there, there will always be. Uh, differences of approach north and south and they're always going to take uh, some kind of a hit in relation to the approach uh, uh, on the north. I mean they have to be cognizant of it and they have to try to be as consistent as possible but I think the party recognises uh, that there, are, there, there will be differences of approach and there will be compromises that they take up in the north or in the south uh, that won't be taken on the other side and they have to take the hit for that uh, as long as it's not too Massive, for, for example, water charges uh, uh, it would have been a step too far. I think they were lucky that they were deferred in the north and they didn't have that 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 problem uh, to to grapple with. And I think that essentially, uh, as far as I can see, they have been pressing very hard 
uh, for their big issues uh, up in the north. I don't think... Uh, you know, these are the issues that they're pressing for in their own right. I don't think that's part of a wider strategy to make sure that they're going to be electorally safe uh, in the South. And as far as I can see, the, the uh, both parties seem to be intractable on all the, all the four key issues at the moment. The Irish Language Act, uh, the inquiry into the Renewable Heat Incentive inquiry, uh, Sinn Féin's demands um, uh, that there be same-sex marriage uh, legislation or change and also moves on uh, abortion legislation in the north. Both of them are inimical uh, to the uh, to the DUP. And then, of course, there, there are legacy issues as well and there are big differences between both parties uh, on that. And then, of course, overriding it all or overarching it all is the, the question of, of Brexit. And every time <laughs> I open up a newspaper, read something online, I see the Sinn Féin position set out and the DUP's uh, position set out and there hasn't been any change, that, not, not alone in the last week, but in the last month or the last year or the last three years. And I'm kind of wondering to myself, I mean, how long is this game? How long is this negotiation going to take place? Newton was saying that nothing is going to happen over the summer. One thing is happening over the summer. Uh, the Assembly members of all Hughes have agreed by general consensus that they're all going to get paid uh, for the summer and continue to get paid. But beyond that, you kind of wonder, how long is this going to go on? And at some stage, James Brokenshaw and Simon Coveney uh, as guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement are going to have to act or else Broken Char is going to have to take a decision that, listen guys, you know, we've tried this uh, but I think the only game in town for the foreseeable future is is direct rule because I, I think the gaps as I can see them at the moment are as big as they ever were. But Newton, are those the, the, the issues uh, that Sinn Féin are pushing that Harry uh, enumerated there, are they being pushed in the full knowledge that the DUP are not going to, uh, not going to agree with them? No, I'm afraid I, I have to disagree with almost all of that. Um, the uh, for, uh, for a start, uh, the welfare reform crisis uh, of the past three years proved that nobody in the South gives a monkey's what happens at Stormont. So I think Sinn Féin is completely off the hook on uh, on what it uh, whatever compromises it wants to make up here. With uh, as Harry as Harry said, they're actually the possible exception of water charging that is a little bit toxic. But they managed to fudge that here. So I'm, I mean, it's not actually been deferred. Uh, we do have water charging, but Stormont pays our bills. It's a very complicated, clever thing that Sinn Féin managed to, to pull off here. As for the issues in the talks at the moment, uh, really only the Irish Language Act is the sticking point. Everything else uh, apparently has a shovel-ready compromise, as we say up here, on legacy. Uh, that's going to be put out to a public consultation, a rather ingenious uh, point. Uh, the uh, issues like the Bill of Rights and other allegedly uh, undelivered agreements, in fact, were delivered. Um, and then simply fell apart, like the Civic Forum is another example of that. These, all the procedures in the Good Friday Agreement to deliver these were met. They just didn't work. Well, that's not the fault of anyone, of anyone at Stormont on uh, same-sex marriage. Um, all that needs to happen with that is that the petition of concern mechanism needs to be reformed. That's the blocking mechanism at Stormont. And then that bill will pass through. And that's all in the Fresh Start Agreement. That's all, that's all ready to go as well. And uh, uh, abortion, uh, nobody here wants to touch with a 10-foot pole. They're quite happy to let Westminster sort that out. Sinn Féin hasn't raised that at all. It's all come down to an Irish Language Act. And in fact, at the moment, the sticking point is almost laughably trivial. Uh, the DUP has agreed to legislate for the Irish language. They just want to bundle in some other unionist cultural issues as well. So it's about whether it's standalone or a general purpose cultures act. And that's it. And in fact, other parties observing the talks while they have complained about the DEP and Sinn Féin not moving at the same time are struck by how very, very close they are 
to reaching a deal. And what about the question of the inquiry into the cash for ash and Sinn Féin's demand that uh, Arlene Foster should step aside for the duration of that? Is that squareable as well, do you think? Well, that's just that's definitely not going to happen. Uh, the uh, inquiry is being led by a retired judge and will therefore take five years. So uh, the, the, she can't stand aside for that. In fact, the more politicians are, are asking the judge to get a move on, the more he is standing on his professional pride and saying he won't. So <laughs> it's, it's definitely not going to happen in a foreseeable future. Arling Foster, Foster, who's now effectively the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, is not going to step down uh, because uh, Michelle O'Neill asks her to. So what's going to happen is Sinn Féin is going to drop this demand. They've made that patently obvious. Senior party members have refused to stand over it recently. They'll fudge it. And in fact, by linking that to the inquiry, which, bear in mind, is already underway, uh, they will essentially make the whole RHI issue go away when they do that. And will that be a quid pro quo then for a standalone Irish language act or will the DUP continue to hold out on that? Well, something will be traded. I mean, the, the DEP earlier in the talks said that they were a bit of a they were they were a bit stuck on horse trading with Sinn Féin because um, all the DEP wants is to get back to Stormont, so it really doesn't have any horses to trade. If you see what I mean, see what I mean, they were absolutely desperate. Uh, they're a little bit less desperate now, so yes, there is a little bit more scope for for trading with Sinn Féin, and that and that will be it. But remember what the what past masters Sinn Féin are at leading the troops right up to the edge of a ditch and then just backing away you know decommissioning police recognition disbanding the IRA all of it was absolutely impossible and couldn't be countenanced right up until the minute it happened and then everybody went well there you go it sounds like from what you say that business will be done in September well, I mean, that uh, that has always been the assumption. Now, it all depends on how the mood goes over the summer. Over the past week, it was all getting a bit tetchy. That wasn't helpful. I actually think that this six-week break or two-month break, the Secretary of State has announced, laughable though it may be in legal terms, will probably help take a bit of the heat out of the situation. Uh, so hopefully... Yes, things will be a little bit better tempered by September. Also, I think that the DUP might have had a bit of the uh, the hubris knocked off them because this deal in Westminster is going to suffer, you know, the usual battering from uh, political events. So I, I think that perhaps everybody will uh, will will get a, will have a little bit less of a swelled head when they arrive in September, and uh, and and yes, there's more of a prospect of a deal then. But even then, there is a there is quite a bit of a workload to get through just to dot all the I's and cross all the T's of everything that needs to be to be sorted out. So uh, pretty much by, by precedent in Northern Ireland, when you're, when you're looking at talks in September, you're really talking about a deal by Christmas, I'm afraid. <laughs> Harry? Uh, just in, in relation to the role that's been played by James Brokenshire and by Simon Coveney, Newton, what, what's, the, what's your own assessment of, of their uh, participation and intervention, if any? It's a bit. It's a bit strange. Uh, Coveney was playing uh, cool as a cucumber and definitely playing it very well right up until last week when he suddenly said, "We back Sinn Féin and the SDLP's call for a standalone Irish language act." And I mean, I'm sure he does. Uh, but uh, it was a bit. It was a bit odd to come right out and say it. it. Didn't really. Nobody could really see how it assisted matters at all. 
And uh, then, of course, everyone is now uh, up in arms about James Brokenshire and what they perceive to be his mishandling of uh, of, of the talks. But really, that's kind of a, a complaint that's already shot its bolt because the SDLP and Sinn Féin have been objecting to Brokenshire since the talks began in March. They've been saying he's unacceptable. So I don't really see how he's any more unacceptable now. He's been totally unacceptable all along. There's also, it is a rather strange spectacle watching nationalists demand Brits in. Why is <laughs> <laughs> you know, why isn't the prime minister here? Why isn't this this NIO minister who we normally denounce as some colonial proconsul? Why isn't he holding our hands? Well, mm-hmm. you know, you wanted to, you wanted mm-hmm. you want to you want to rule yourselves, rule it. You know, go go and do it. Newton, Harry, thanks very much. Well, that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to Newton Emerson and to Harry McGee here in studio. We'll talk to you next week.